Hello, I'm Jeremy Hansen, editor of Home Magazine, and I'm here with architects Matt Brown. Hello. Natasha Markham. Hi there. And Richard Archbold, known as Arch. Hello. This is our first podcast, and we're hoping this will be a monthly thing. Today, we're going to visit Home Magazine's Home of the Year 2015, designed by architect Richard Naish. The house is a fascinating house that's provoked an equally fascinating response online. We're going to pick over some of the more vociferous comments later. But first, why are we even doing this? I think um, one of the things that we were trying to do um, with this podcast is, is bridge that gap between uh, the way that architecture is often shown in magazines and photos and the way that it's actually experienced. People are having very different reactions to characters of the house than we had when we walked through it. Yeah. And it's interesting to talk about maybe why that is. Yeah. So we have words and photos and videos that describe the house in some way and sometimes we have drawings. But architecture is about an experience and a feeling of being inside a space. And that's the sum of sight and sound and in this case smell and temperature and one of the reasons we're doing this is to actually go and have some of those experiences and talk about them and bridge that gap between those descriptions and what it feels like to be in there. Yeah, so we hope that by doing this podcast we'll share that experience of visiting the house with you, our millions of listeners. But don't go around and like thump on Richard's door and ask to all go and have the same experience. And the name 76 Small Rooms comes from one of the comments that followed a Stuff magazine article on the Home of the Year. How did we get to that being the name of this? There's a, there's a comment in there that says, uh, sounds like fun until you have to vacuum 76 small rooms. And uh, 76 small rooms seemed like a, like a really nice little neat contraction, contraction of that as a name. And it seemed good to take something positive out of some of the largely negative impressions that were commented on there. And also, ultimately, I think we look after the things that we really love. Even if the house did have 76 small rooms, they'd all be very beautifully cared for. And if we designed everything based on it being as easy as possible to clean, I think it would be a very uh, bad outcome. <laughs> this is a good time to mention that we're on Twitter at 76 Small Rooms. You can also get in touch with us on our email address, 76, that's the number 7 and the number 6, followed by small rooms, all one word, at gmail.com. Connect with us on Facebook and on all of those mediums you can watch a short web film of the Home of the Year if you want some visuals to accompany this talk. Just before we get to the house, let's get some reaction from our visit. Tush. What did you enjoy most about visiting this place? Um, well, for me, great architecture is, is one that operates at all scales, and, and I think this house really does that. that. Um, when you see the house in context, um, it really responds well to the neighbouring villas and also the um, steep topography of the neighbouring area. Um, I think the house uses um, uh, really bold, pure forms, um, and, and this is why it relates so so well. And yet, at the same time, it's a very crafted house. And when you zoom in and, and get close to the details, you can see this consistency of design approach um, through through those details as well. Matt, we talked about how standing outside the house is quite a different experience to being inside it. How did you find that contrast when we visited? It becomes a much clearer house internally once you get into the house and you see the corridor and the, the way places are connected to that corridor it becomes a more clear about what Richard was aiming to do and the thing that really struck me from the visit and perhaps it's because I'm completely interested in it is the spatial complexity of it the way that spaces are joined together which is something you don't necessarily get from photos or from a plan 
Um, but it was clearly something that Richard set out to do and, and something I found really, really successful. And Arch, what stood out to you the most? Well, I think the aspect of craft that Tasha and Matt have talked out is really apparent, but maybe if I can talk to some of the smaller details and the parts that you touch and see and the way in which the house was filled and decorated um, really left me with a very strong recollection of nostalgia for houses I was in uh, when I was a child and you know we talked about that an awful lot when we were there. So stay tuned for more architectural outrage from stuff commenters later and architect Richard Nash's own response to it but first here's our visit to Richard's home which he designed for his own family his wife Andrea and their three children in the Auckland suburb of Greylin. So that's the rhythm for the soundtrack. Yeah. That's right. I, I, did, I, did a, I did a whole album of that, actually. It didn't sell very well, but I do have a few copies lying around. <laughs> we first caught up with Richard Nash in the garden room. So we're standing in this garden room space. We've just come up the entry, uh, up the stairs from the main entry. And we've arrived in this beautiful space full of macrame pot plant hangers. And you can see the cedar from the pavilions expressed inside and this long street-like form running up to the left. When you first purchased the site, what kind of a, how quickly did the conception of this building come to you and, and how did you know it was the right solution? Yeah, look, it's a good question. Um, it, yeah, the, it came together quite quickly because um, I guess I was immediately confronted with this quite steep, narrow site, pretty typical in Greyland, but it had this wonderful slope to it that would have offered great orientation to the long side of the site to the northern sun um, and then an east-west sort of axis on the on the main slope so it, it quite quickly came together that we would sort of place the sort of um, series of, of pavilions I guess sort of stack, stacked up the hill and uh, it was always in my mind that I'd try and create a sort of a courtyard house because our previous house had had that and we really loved the, the way that that worked uh, in a family house situation so um, the fact that it offered the opportunity for three pavilions and two courtyards was quite a quite an mm. obvious sort of thing for me arriving here. Have you lived as a family in a big open plan space before? Like you're reacting against something and creating this home made up of smaller capsules yeah. for the family to live in? Yeah, strangely enough, when we were, we rented a, a villa up the road, um, but we'd already designed the house when we lived in it, <laughs> but that villa had this one, single open plan space with no second living area, kitchen, dining, living. Um, and you know, with three kids in one space like that, it's just sort of yeah, the TV, the kitchen, and everything's going on. It was just um, pretty. So that that sort of vindicated the decision to do this, I guess. But the previous house that we built had a, a, a more of an open plan arrangement, um, but it had the luxury of a second living space as well. Um, but you know, and that, and that was great. But uh, I guess part of the experimentation or exploration in this house. Was, was more of a fascination with trying to create um, a sequence of smaller spaces both indoor and out. I mean there's probably about five or six outdoor, sp outdoor living spaces in this small site and, um, and there's, you know, if you count these garden rooms there's at least four or five indoor spaces mm. which you can live in as well. So rather than invest all of that space into one colossal open plan area, we've chopped it up into five or so. And now you've been here a while. Do any of those spaces feel superfluous? Do you think you could have edited more or does it work? 
no, as you planned? No, it's sort of, it's a bit like pouring water into some unusually shaped object. It just, you know, it just finds its way and naturally into these spaces. So yeah, so it's, that's great. You know, so that space up the top, the second higher garden room there has become a, got a piano there, mm -hmm. so it's a music. You know, Holly plays um, cello and, and both girls play the piano, so that's naturally that. But in the summertime it transfers to a sort of a changing room for the swimming pool and, um, and, and also I just drag the pool equipment from outside the south side of the house through there. And it's uh, just, you know, it can be anything. One day there might be sort of pool filtering equipment in there and next day it's um, cello practice. Yeah, yeah, so, no, yeah. I think if you've if you've got it, it'll get used, and if it, particularly if it's got the right feel about it, then people sort of naturally um, are drawn to it. Mm. I can only imagine what this place is like when it's full of music as well. Yeah, it must be fantastic. Oh, it's great. Yeah, just listening to the piano, sort of. Plus mm. churn, Rich. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I have skills in other areas. <laughs> Well, actually, that leads on to, um, I, I guess, the, we were talking before about the smell of the house and we walked in. Was that mm. something that was intentional for you that you thought about, or is it a sort of a happy accident? Oh, it, it is a happy accident, but I've always, um, you know, I've immediately sort of drawn to the, the fragrance of cedar, mm. you know, because we've worked with it before on, on other people's building sites. So I, I always knew that that would be a, a bonus, but you never quite know what it's going to be until... Because I heard you guys saying you could smell it. Yeah. We can't smell it anymore. Yes. It's, it's sort of like, it's just the natural, you know. You, you, You're acclimatised. Yeah, 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 I guess it's like people living in Rotorua, they just... Yeah, smell, yeah, we're all talking about how it's not something that normally chimes when you enter a building, fragrance and mm. smell, or when it mm. does, it's often with planting or things like that. So there's this rawness of material mm. that does that, but also touch, like... You know, you can't help but run your hand up the wall. Yeah. The timber is rough, but I'm looking at this. There's a detail here, this door handle, which is mm. just this thick piece of rope. Yeah. It's like a really, um, really interesting way to just engage. You know, a lot of architects talk about that element of where we touch and engage with buildings. Yeah. and obsess about handrails and door handles and things like that. How yeah. conscious was that when you moved from the arrangement of the site down to the detailed consideration of the building? Yeah, well, it was sort of connected with... Um, it's sort of a, a desire to not overcook everything, you know, and mm. also, and that was linked with a budgetary sort of constraint as well. So, you know, um, every opportunity where I could see to sort of sort of just trim a little bit of money out of the budget, and, you know, we all know how, how much you can spend on a door handle every now and then. Yeah, so it's not hay filet <laughs> rope handles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so same with these light, um, steel light discs, you know, so we decided just to hang light bulbs throughout the whole house, but you know, just chosen a um, replica Edison bulb and, and I just sort of had about 30 of those discs made up. So door handles, discs, so always, and some of the material choices, no carpet, just, you know, it's partly connected with the sustainable sort of program, but also, you know, why carpet it when, you know, why spend that extra money on floor finishes when, when it just looks natural and yeah. good. So that's sort of the philosophy with the door handles as well. Do you think, personally, do you think you've been restrained in the detailing or have you been sort of playful and exploratory. Yeah, um, yeah I, th I would probably say restrained, but I, I, th I think there's the, the sort of overlay with this house, which which I sort of use the word sort of nostalgic. Yeah, because mm. yeah, so. I, I have very strong feelings and recollections back to places yeah. and spaces I was in growing yeah. up, late 70s, early yeah. 80s, yeah. these, mm. these mm. 
the colour palette of the um, of some of the doors against the cedar. You know, yeah. even even when I look at the things we all like to obsess about when we choose them, and I look at the light switches, mm. I look at the cute little kind of handles on the mm. cupboards, and then the different handle again. Mm. Personally, I think mm. it's quite a playful mm. kind of exploration of details like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, there was a, a conscious um, effort because you know this is again the luxury of doing your own house. So there was a conscious effort to try and inject all of those things that are personal to us. You know, and some of them are as, as small and almost as trivial as these mm. which we bought on the Greyland Market off a of blacksmith. Yeah. You know, and just because you're there and you're in the market and then you think oh, that'd be cool and then you buy a couple and then you, that afternoon you screw them on. Mm. Um, but down to some more more significant moves like in the kitchen where, where we've consciously sort of tried to reference um, the family kitchen of, of, of Andrea's family house where she grew up in, in the Otago Harbour and, and things like that by placing certain paintings that were there that were also in her kitchen when she was a childhood oh, yeah. and it was a in that case, it was a beautiful cowrie tongue and groove lined handmade kitchen that her father built, and there's certain elements of that here. It had a popular stove, mm. it had a, a painting, it had a t similar kitchen table where everybody sort of gathered, and so there's those sort of sort of connections on a more of a larger scale. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really beautiful summary mm. because, like all great um, home making, you're creating you're creating something more than a spatial sequence or a box that houses or keeps yeah. the rain out. You're creating this shell of memories and moments. Yeah. Yes. It's yes. fascinating to hear talk about almost re-curating the space from a previous home mm. yes. into the mm. new home. Mm. Um, and I think everyone can relate to the idea of seeing that little... Um, mm. I really admire going, you know, we've found this thing and we're not considering how it will integrate later as a whole or how compatible it is yeah. to my hardware schedule yes. or the <laughs> that I might have selected. Because yeah. I actually think that's really personal and really meaningful yeah. for the people who live in it, let alone the variety that it creates and what you end up composing. Yeah, yeah. We then moved into very much the heart of the home, which is the kitchen and dining area, the, the uh, kitchen's clad in black, uh, glossy tiles and the ceiling's covered in cedar. Sort of, um, yeah, I mean, I've, there's other architect friends such as Pete Bosley and Malcolm Walker um, have come here and I you sort of sense something um, about their reaction to it which is maybe connected to, you know, being a slightly older generation. So, um, but I think with the younger generation, uh, they just take it as, as current. I, I, you know, they don't mm. think about it, it's just... It's just it's just my mate's house that I go and play at, or it's or it's my own house that I grew up growing up in, or whatever. Yeah. It's nice to think that your daughters in a number of years' time might be designing their kitchen to resonate with the kitchen <laughs> yes. you design, yeah, yeah, yeah. which resonates with yeah, their, the one before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, Pete Bosley and Malcolm Walker, and I I worked with Gordon and um, Gordon Muller and John Craig, mm. and this house in the images and certainly have been here resonates a lot with me with their earlier work mm. and the, the forms remind me of John Scott and and, mm. um, and Ron Sang and that sort of thing. Are they are, are they I am imagining that they, those architects were the sort of people you might have been looking up to as mm. you were working and learning in New Zealand. Is that part of this building or is it not not, not consciously but I'm sure it is um, subconsciously. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I also have this, I know that there, there's, you know, we all know that there are certain trends that go on in architecture and um, there uh, are a number, there is a whole, you know, there's a whole body of work in New Zealand residential architecture that 
is of this sort of scale mm. and you sort of think well hang on a minute why have we left that all behind and you know so I guess that's going on in the back of my mind you know that what 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 you know what made those guys um, you know and I'm thinking also of Claude Mexon mm, that's how okay. I thought of him too <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, you know I visited a house of his recently again and nothing it was after this place but at the um, Cocker, Crocker Street, or uh, there were the Cocker Flats in um, Wood Street. And in Freeman's Bay. Yeah, mm. yeah, we gave them the Heritage Award last year, and they're just ridiculously small spaces mm. there yeah. sometimes. You know, there's a little tower that you have to actually go up a vertical ladder, open a trap door, yeah. and sit up there in a space the size of a cupboard, but it's just got this amazing ability, you know, this corner window that just... So, yeah, so it's that sort of um, interest, I guess, in, in, that, in that smaller scale of spaces. Yeah, that mm. has grown from that tradition, I guess, of, of mm. great New Zealand residential architects. It was very different to the last site that you built on, which was this double width site. Yes, mm. double width and flat, whereas this is half the width and And this steep. is your second house with RTA, so you obviously like them. <laughs> 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 they're, they're great to work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Richard can be a bit argumentative at times. But, uh, <laughs> but no, what I was just going to add to that is that, yeah, the, the, the view is pretty much sort of in this... Um, northeastern direction so so the the forms all sort of best point to that mm -hmm. and um, this idea of entering on the diagonal of each space is something that I found interesting mm -hmm. and wanted to explore so all these spaces have these always these little lobbies where you change the level and the yeah you'll see work. when we get to our bedroom which is on the upper level of the middle pavilion we enter at the corner and you get the same view yeah um, and then the third one is a smaller bedroom but it has the same diagonal entry point. Yeah. And I think what is so successful about that too is that the you're entering at the lowest ceiling point of the room mm, yeah. and the, the space just sort of expands away, yeah, you know, from you. Area, yeah. And I mean, going back to um, what we were talking back about before in terms of uh, this dining kitchen area not being a vast space, it also feels just right. Yeah. And, and I can imagine, you know, a wonderful um, a lunch or a dinner here where there's that sort of um, the, the requisite amount of intimacy is, mm. is sort of um, yeah. uh, you know uh, supported by the space yeah yeah no it's amazing I mean I was sitting watching the cricket the other day in the living room with an old friend who'd been here you know almost weekly for a year and a half and he said yeah this is the first time I've ever sat in your living room because we yeah. never yeah. get out of the kitchen yeah. table usually socially we're just here and that's what's also good about the operation of the house is that you only really go there to watch a movie or, yeah. the, you know, with the kids or whatever. Or the kids go there and have their separate sort of living mm. space. Mm. Yeah. I, and I, I very much identify with what um, you were saying before about the barn-like open plan living being actually really difficult in a family environment mm. Mm. because um, the dynamics of, of several people uh, in play uh, are, are sort of beyond one space, I think. Um, you need mm. to allow sort of spaces to retreat from family life or, you know, have some separation and yeah. kind of... I guess, um, yeah, cater to all of the different kind of um, dynamics you might have at any one time. Mm, mm, absolutely, yes. I don't yeah. want to accuse you of being a reactive architect, Richard, because I don't think you are, but yeah. I'm also interested in this tendency in a lot of New Zealand homes in recent years 
where there's been a huge shift, I think, in the ratio of glass to wall. Mm. So you have very glassy houses with, yeah. you know, maybe only a couple of walls in the main living spaces and the rest sort of opens up. And here you've kind of changed that ratio. Mm. Not that any of the spaces are dark, but that, mm. you know, you have windows selecting views, but there's a lot of wall and you feel kind of quite mm. warmly contained by these spaces. Was that also something you were consciously pushing after? Yeah, yeah, and again, it's, I mean, there's so many things in architecture are part of a system rather than a single reaction to one thing. So that's partly, um, the con like you say, the control of where to place the windows from a viewpoint of view, trying to get the right balance of light, uh, but also leave enough wall space um, for displaying of artworks, which, we've, which is a big part of the program mm. of this house, I guess. And also a sustainable thing about having enough um, insulation mm. you know, at the end of the day and controlling that. And, and in cross-ventilation is was hugely considered here in terms of always being able to open windows on opposite sides of a room, like, like we've even got now in late um, sort of summer. It's still quite warm and it's just nice to have that airflow, yeah. which has worked really well. So it's all, I guess there's a system of things that are contributing to that decision. Mm. Yeah. Yes, you have a lot of perimeter here because yeah. of the, the um, layout of the yeah. spaces. But that, I mean, uh, means that you can get that cross-ventilation and also it affords each of these spaces with, I guess, views, yeah. which they might not have had. East, north and west, um, yes. no windows at all on the southern side of the yeah. house. And so that gives a great change of light quality through the mm. day, but also um, winter, mm. you know, sun all day around. We then moved outside into one of the courtyards which ties together the living room, the kitchen dining area and the garden room. How did you design this house in terms of the way it was brought, resolved, brought into being mm. tested spatially mm. and those sorts of things? Well the plan was, a, a yeah, it started off with, a rigor, with just a plan and a sketchbook, you know, scale, hand-drawn plan mm -hmm. and um, I, had, I, I had a hunch that the site, I hadn't even had it um, surveyed at that stage but I, I was hoping that we would be able to sort of have a full level difference be between each pavilion and mm -hmm. if that was the case then the upper level of one would be the lower mm -hmm. level of the next and the upper level of that and so so that so that was just a given that was going to happen and then I just sort of resolved the plan pretty precisely and, and fully in, in the sketchbook and then and then tested that with computer modelling and yep. we didn't make a physical model of this house actually and as it was, the, the levels weren't quite there on the land, and we've made a few adjustments, which have made the, uh, added, I think, to, to the <laughs> arrangement of these three spaces. So this one that you arrive at, the garden room, you drop down two steps to the living room, and you rise up two steps to the to the kitchen and dining room, and and that's just and so you have this level level floor relationship between courtyard and living room, and then you have four steps up to the kitchen. Yeah, and then two steps up to the garden room. Mm. Well, I think those shifts add to that quite exciting sense of exploration when you're in the house, don't mm. they? Yeah, that, yeah. That you're always shifting and changing and yes. the spaces are reshaping themselves around yeah. you as well. And who's the Macrami wizard? Uh, that's some, uh, that's an, uh, someone from Ethiopia. Uh, <laughs> because I bought them at the trade age shop. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. how much is, because there's a lot of um, decoration in a sense, particularly the planting and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Is that yeah. something um, you've always you know, lived around? Is it something that you, that's happened more perhaps in this house than others you've lived in? 
Um, well, we've always had, a, as I think, as a, as a studio, we've always had um, an interest in, in the um, a relationship between space and decoration, and um, and the reference. It's off, we've often used that reference, you know, to reference context and historical context. And surfaces, the decoration of surfaces. Yeah, yeah, yep. Um, like like McKelvey Street shops, which have have a. Um, the perforation on the facade that relates to a Victorian mm-hmm. pattern or iron bank with um, press of feet, press, mm-hmm. press metal yep. ceilings, and so the, in this case, um, I, it, no, it's not as it's not as um, overt as that. It's more, uh, I guess, just a, you know, slightly nostalgic thing. I think. Yeah. I mean, there is that real balance between sort of the rigor of the plan and the way you've addressed the site, mm. um, and then then that real Soften. craft, yeah. yeah, which it does, it really softens and, and adds a real richness to, yeah. to the spaces and interest, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so that, I think that is probably yeah. it, really. It's just about trying to, um, and, you know, and really we're, we're a bit gutless here. We should be throwing way more plants inside. And, uh, you know, Jack actually said to me the other day, my son, he said, oh, wouldn't it be great if you grew that ivy on the inside wall? And he's absolutely right. It would be great, yeah. but I'm just not quite sure if I'm ready to do that. Pot plants in there. It's enough yep. natural light. It would just yeah. be fantastic. Yeah. And it's um it's actually a very visible site. I was actually over uh, yeah. at Grayland Park with my kids on the weekend, yeah. and uh, looked across from Rose Road, and you can see the house, yes. you know, very clearly. And yeah. it it sits so well in its context. Were you thinking about that? Sort of wider context and and and, and its visibility yeah, when you were designing yeah, absolutely. it. Absolutely, yeah. That was um, yeah, we haven't spoken about that. That that was really a, um, one of the driving ideas about about how to deal with the form of the house and mm. its and its wider historical context. So um, yeah, I've talked about I guess conceptually when you look at a villa like this one over the road, it, it's essentially a, it got a pyramid roof mm. and then a bay that pops out. So we just really conceived of this as taking that pyramid and dissecting it into four um, pieces and then rearranging them up mm. the side. Yep. Like slicing an orange. Yeah. Yep. Yes. And then they all orient one way. And then yep. eating yep. one sec- section <laughs> so you only had three to play with. <laughs> <laughs> Wondering how you'll afford the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, couldn't afford four so we threw one away. And what's lovely about that is that the house really responds to both the historical context and also the landform as well, which the mm. villas don't really do so yeah. much. And what was Andrea's input into the house? I mean, how does that sort of client-architect relationship work? Oh, really well. Yeah. Um, no, we, we collaborate, you know, in terms of client-architect relationship really, really well. Um, so that process was quite fluid, but she sort of affords me quite a bit of trust in terms yeah. of, like, laying down the floor plan. And But but it, but then, you know, it has, it has to work, and there's things that changed and pushed, and she's a great critic as well she's got a bit of architectural knowledge and mm. so it's very very good input here so we've walked around the house we've all enjoyed it we've had an illuminating chat then we got to the tough bit asking Richard for his response to some of the more vociferous online comments that appeared on the stuff news website after it ran a story on the house to give you a bit of context we thought we'd read you some of our favorite comments before Richard responded to them Matt do you want to start Sure. Uh, Gabby Real had um, this to add. She said, Nup, it's ugly. And here's one from Marie996. Awful, cold, sterile house. Very 70s. Hate the narrow hallway. Doesn't appeal one bit. Sure, there are many better homes around. And the one I've chosen is from a commenter called Source, which says, Irritates me how he describes what is simply just a house. Speak English so we can understand you, thanks. 
and my favourite is a bit obvious, but J&G wrote, This is an Auckland Home of the Year award. It's not what you know in Auckland, it's who you know. Home Magazine is an average publication with average photography. Who buys this magazine? <laughs> now we're going to address all those comments later, but first have a listen to what Richard had to say about them. Yeah. Richard, I have to ask, there's been a story on stuff about the house, and um, I wondered if you'd read the comments. No, I haven't. I'm, I'm, a, bit of, I'm a bit of a Luddite when it comes to... Uh, are they, are they... They're vitriolic. <laughs> Many of them. There are defenders, but... There are <laughs> some brave defenders, yes. Oh, and there's kind of a, there's a perverse glee in reading the comments and seeing how instantly dismissive people are of the house. But we've been talking about this a little bit, and in terms of the way a lot of people in that comments thread seem to respond to contemporary architecture, and it's almost like they don't want to engage at all. There's an immediate dismissiveness. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if you find this as an architect in your practice or if you're shielded from that because the conversations you're having are immediately architectural anyway? Yeah, look, you've got to have thick skin as an architect. Mm. I mean, if you, you know, if you designed to the committee of the world, you'd, you'd be um, yeah. sort of doing some pretty ordinary stuff. But so, yeah, look, yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we, we've, we, we do, I guess, um, a lot of our buildings um, slightly polarised public view, shall we say, and, and so I, I enjoy the debate. I think of... You know, I mean, everybody's got the right to say what they what they like about um, about architecture. So that's that's fine. But I do find it curious, you know, that um, particularly, you know, um, uh, you know, Greyland is is a in my mind a, a liberal neighbourhood. But sometimes it feels very conservative. Mm. You know, and there's a lot of artists and actors and wonderful creative people that live here. But there's a sort of there's an underlying conservatism as well that. Um, that, that a lot of the a lot of uh, the community share, but um, I'm pretty sure some of the commenters on the stuff website are not from Greatland. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they from Mars. I don't know. <laughs> One of the best comments is someone saying it looks dark and cold. I'd much rather a villa any day. <laughs> and, <laughs> of course, they're known for their brightness and warmth. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. Yeah, and I, the other thing that just astounds me is that, you know, that you, I think it's hard being an architect because, you know, we sit somewhere between being um, an artist and and a, I don't know, some, something staunchly locked in the middle of the mercantile sort of commercial world, you know, mm. and, but, but, but so of course, you know, photographers and artists and actors, we celebrate, you know, at the drop of a hat. Um, but we find it difficult as a community, I think, in New Zealand to celebrate arch architects sometimes because there's some, I don't know what it is, but there's, um, there's sometimes a disconnect between the, the object as a, as a sculpture, you know, as, as a livable sculpture and, and just being a commercial undertaking. So there's an architect untroubled by a little bit of negative feedback, which we like. But if I could ask you guys as architects, do you think these comments illustrate a huge gulf between the architecture profession and the public that experiences their buildings? Or do you think we live in a country with a reasonably sophisticated appreciation of your craft? Tash, what do you think? I think that one of the things that's interesting about architecture is that it really does need to be experienced. And, and, and you know, the photographs um, taken of Richard's home are really beautiful, but they know, in no way convey what it's really like to be in that space. 
I'm really interested um, in a lot of these comments which are, are quite dismissive of the house um, and, and pick up on things like it being appearing cold or sterile. Um, when you're in the house it's certainly not that way at all. And I wonder if a lot of these thing, uh, comments have to do with the, the um, materials um, that people see in the photographs and their association with an experience of mm. them, you know, perhaps a badly built 70s block building which is damp and, and cold. Um, it's also really interesting comments um, about the narrow hallway. Again, the hallway isn't narrow at all. In, in fact, it uh, accommodates two people quite comfortably. However, it is a very, very long hallway. It runs the full length of the house. 35 metres. Yeah, it? which is pretty impressive. And and one of the things that in architecture we often try and do is, is create um, spaces that are dynamic. One space um, which might feel relatively compressed um, it does so because it then highlights the relative expanse of say walking out into that garden room having traversed the first flight of stairs and those things are really exciting um, to experience in architecture but perhaps very difficult to convey in photographs. Matt what do you think? Yeah I think the, the comments are interesting they do illustrate a difference between I guess how architects talk about their buildings and, and how people see them um, and it's I guess again one of the reasons why we're looking to do this podcast is to try and bridge that gap a little bit and the hard thing is when you get Gabby Real saying no that's ugly as what as an architect you're reading the comments and trying to understand how to bridge that gap better but those comments actually don't don't provide any any um anything constructive to work with it's so dismissive that's your comment that you chose to read out suggests that architects are speaking in a language that people don't understand. Is that a criticism you find is levelled at the profession often? I'm not sure that it was in this particular case, having watched the way Richard spoke about it. But um, I think a lot of the time it is a very valid criticism. Uh, we, we soak in it and we speak to our peers in it, and it can be a slippery slide to increasingly use more and more language that distances people who don't use those words. It's very good practice for architects to use simple language to speak about complex ideas and... Um, to come back to your question, often it's a fair criticism, and I think we could be better at it. Um, I'd invite feedback from anyone listening to actually let us know whether you think we are guilty of that in the discussions we're having here. When, as architects, you read you know, 60-odd comments like this, 55 of which are incredibly negative, how does it make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> But do you think no you know, one understands me? Well, I mean, to last or that you need to change things. How does that? How does that work? I, I think it's important to remain open to what the comments are. It would be very easy, particularly in the face of overwhelmingly negative comment, to assume that the the, the, the work is bad and become defensive and dismiss it. I, I try and keep an, an open mind that every every comment is valid, and you 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 can um, go through and respond to them. But. As Richard said at the house, you develop quite a thick skin because particularly when you're, when you're involved in work like this house that is not conventional, it doesn't look like the houses alongside, it's bound to engender a really, a really strong response from people and that shouldn't put people off from actually pushing the creative edge a little further. 
I, I think that you have to be opt- an optimistic person if you practice architecture. I mean, I think mo- the reason why most of us do this is because we genuinely believe that that design and architecture um, can enhance people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so um, I think, uh, it, like um, as Arch says, it's very important to um, listen to these comments and, and, and treat them um, really seriously. But um, would it um, uh, would I give up practice tomorrow because uh, of negative comments? No, I don't think so. And I don't think Richard would either. I think part of what we do as architects is we, we spend a lot, long time explaining buildings because they're not built and it's part of our job. So when you read comments like this, perhaps we've often seen it being defensive folk and perhaps that's it because we want to explain why things are the way they are because that's part of how we become architects and, and what it is we do is our job. So when you read things like this and you kind of think, well, why are we doing our job properly? Are we doing it well? How can we do it better? And before you can walk someone through a building, you have to do some talking. Yes. yes. You know, you have to use some words to try and explain the potential before you can move to a sketch, before you can move to a 3D model, before you can move to a render, mm. a mock-up, materials. Mm. One of the spaces Richard designed in the house is specifically nostalgic. It's the area, the kitchen and dining shared area, and it, as he says, it refers back to a room that Andrea, his wife, spent a lot of time in growing up, this heart of the home which was uh, lined in Cody, um, that she grew up in, and she remembers a lot of discussions happening around the dining room table, and this was part of their, they've attempted in their own way to recreate this space. What I wanted to ask you is, how much architectural expectation is framed by our experience of spaces in a young, at a young age? So, if you grow up in kind of a small bungalow, for example, are you shaped in such a way that you only want to live in small bungalows after that because the familiarity makes you feel comfortable? How do you break people out of that possible cycle and introduce them to the possibility of difference? That's a really excellent but mm. quite crunchy question. I don't think it conditions you to only respond to that, but undeniably you respond to those things that are familiar because of the way that childhood memories and associations mm. and Christmases and birthdays and faded photos and all of those things contribute to a picture of a really formative time. That would be my answer to the first half of that really meaty, crunchy question. The second half, how do you perhaps move people out of that? I'd come back to what Tasha said about the experiences that you have in buildings and something I've talked about before. You don't need the code or the language to have those experiences. Really good architecture can elicit a response in you that you maybe didn't even know you were going to have. Just like really good music and really good theatre, you don't have to be familiar with those things or have grown up with them to have actually had an emotional response to them. And if we're talking about reading the stuff comments and taking them seriously, it's also true, isn't it, that everybody has an emotional response to a space that they enter. And I guess as architects you have to... A, try and elicit a positive emotional response, but also respect the emotional response that people have in different spaces. Would that be correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I think that that um, response is is often really complex. It might draw on um, uh, experiences from one's childhood. It might um, be, you know, sort of a a more immediate response to the the way the house brings in light Mm. or, or, Mm. you know, opens up to uh, the outdoors. I mean, it, it could be... 
um, layered and, and, um, and complex and sometimes people might not be able to necessarily unpack what it is but yeah. they just know it makes it feel mm. them feel a certain way sort of like, I mean if you try on someone else's clothes and they don't fit you it doesn't make them bad clothes no these buildings are very bespoke and fitted very and I'm bespoke. sure that if Richard designed a home for Davo 82 or Professor Plum it would be a very different home <laughs> yes. and hopefully Davo 82 and Professor Plum would be as thrilled as Andrew and Richard are in their heart. Yeah. I think Marie 996, ironically, was incredibly insightful when she said it's very 70s. It's exactly probably what Richard was aiming for in the design mm. of the house. Mm. So, you know, that's the sort of things I'm looking for exactly. So that's all from us in this, our first 76 Small Rooms podcast. Stay tuned for our next one in about a month. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at 76smallrooms, email us on our Gmail address, 76smallrooms at Gmail, and like us on Facebook. We apologise for the foot stomping upstairs in the cafeteria. We'll choose a quieter room next time. But in the meantime, from me, Jeremy Hansen, and the rest of the 76 Small Rooms team, Arch, Matt and Natasha, thanks for listening.